Welcome to this evening's talk. Um, those of you who don't know me, I'm, I'm Carol Siegel, I'm Director of the Freud Museum, and just to say thank you all very much for coming, um, and I'm sure you're going to have a very interesting evening. Um, those of you who, who know the museum, many of you I think have been here before, um, but you'll probably see that we have a current exhibition saying it, which is the, explains the various monitors going through the house, which is actually the story of um, uh, someone's analysis, but you'll also see, if you've been here before, that we're beginning to install some new displays and some new material. Um, so those of you who've been here before, you may recognise some, some changes and come back in a few weeks and you'll see you know, a, a lot of new things. Um, you may also be interested, if you've come tonight, in just picking up one of our events leaflets and seeing what else is coming up that you would like to come to. There's a great conference on the 10th of November on media ethics with a really good uh, set of speakers. So there are a number of things coming up here. Um, tonight, very pleased to welcome uh, Lisa Opinionese, who amongst her other attributes is the chair of our trustees. And she's in conversation with Adam Phillips, um, who, as you all know, as you're here, is psychoanalyst, writer, um, very well respected in both, both spheres and particularly tonight talking about his latest book Missing Out and after the talk finishes there are copies of the books available in our bookshop downstairs and I believe you're happy to, to, to sign um, so please do go to the bookshop afterwards um, but I'm sure before, not many copies you'll have to be quick yeah you have to fight each other for the, for the copies um, but uh, meanwhile, before then, you'll be listening to what I'm sure will be a fascinating conversation. Um, both Adam and Lisa are mic'd up, but do say, if for any reason you can't hear, because we can always slightly adjust the mics. Um, enjoy. Thank you. Thank you very much, Carol. And thank you for all the wonderful new things that we have to see at the Museum. Um, well, it's my very, very great pleasure to be here tonight and to welcome all of you. Um, and it's a particular pleasure because I think, um, and you can quote me, that Adam Phillips is our finest writer on uh, matters to do with the psychoanalytic. I won't say about psychoanalysis because I don't think there's necessarily an about in there. But like Freud, he uses the material of psyche, of literature, of philosophy to actually think and to make us think. Um, now, it's quite difficult to make me think these days, <laughs> so Adam, this is really a huge compliment. You know, writers spend a lot of time writing, they don't spend that much time thinking. Um, but, but, that's a joke. Um, <laughs> tonight we're talking about missing out in praise of the unlived life. It follows upon, a, 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 I don't know, a dozen, maybe more than a dozen books from Adam. Um, on kissing, tickling, and being bored, the beast in the nursery, going sane, on kindness with Barbara Taylor, on balance, um, and soon a, a different kind of book, a biography of Sigmund Freud. Now, if, if you just listen to the titles that I've mentioned, it's quite clear that Adam comes to uh, this matter of who we are and how we are, um, why we are, um, from, from a place which is sideways, I mean, almost like um, sideways glances on the human condition. And I, who followed his work for a long time, um, 
I'm always sitting there with, with, with a great kind of aha experience, a great, a great sense of surprise, because he's come at it again from, from a point of view that I, I hadn't considered or I hadn't thought about. So, Adam, my first question to you, and it can take the whole session to answer if you want to, um, is, is where do you find this way of seeing, which is, which is somehow from you know, every place but the center from which everybody else sees, in other words, away from our received ideas. How did, how did missing out come to you? Well, <clears throat> you know, as anybody who writes knows, but actually one has no idea where these things come from. Um, I don't try and look at things from an odd point of view. Because these descriptions, which come from outside, as you look, are very odd. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you have that we experience. We can't hear. You can't hear. Is it actually, it doesn't sound like that to me, actually. Did you hear me? Yes. Barely. I think it may need to be a bit but close. The little bits are very exciting. Is that better? No. Uh, <laughs> Maybe if you put it right up on the shirt collar. Oh, it's right. It's right. It's right. Can you hear that? Yes. Does, it, does it sound amplified? Yeah, so, um, as I was saying, talk to them, forget about me. Well, I'll, I'll just talk. How do they come from your patients? Well, the answer is I don't. I really don't know. I don't mean this is disingenuous. But I really don't know. All I know is that when I write, that's what happens. So that, so that, for example, when you describe to me the effect of the writing. I have no idea about that until unless someone tells me. Because when I'm doing it, I'm doing it entirely for my own pleasure in the first instance. In other words, the pleasure for me of writing is a bit like what you were saying. It's the pleasure of being able to think, but performed in writing. So that, for example, I don't think about my writing when I'm not doing it. I don't think about the subjects. The writing is what happens when I write. And in that sense, it is, for a better word, unconscious. It's uncalculated and unplanned, and I like doing it because it surprised me because I can do it. But I do it, for, I do it entirely for the pleasure of doing it, because it isn't difficult for me. It's very, very easy. It's like automatic writing. But in, but in doing it, obviously I'm surprised. I don't mean this is too self-aggrandizing way. I'm surprised what turns up. So I can read my books and really be quite interested in them. And express them. <laughs> I do understand that. But, but do, so do these organizing titles or organizing uh, structures for the book come after the fact? Because, I mean, for example, in this book, um, in Missing Out, you've got, um, let me just get into the section headings, um, five chapters really. One called On Frustration, On Not Getting It, On Getting Away, and On Getting Out, and finally, on, sorry, on getting out of it, sorry, sorry, and finally on satisfaction. So it feels like there's a sequence there um, in which you've meditated on a particular set of ideas. There, yes, there is a sequence, but the initial, it's very like what Laplanche talks about, the enigmatic demand of the mother. What happens to me is somebody asks me to give a talk, and the moment they've asked me, I have an idea for a talk, and then I write it. But it comes from a, dem a non-specific demand. It doesn't always and only come from a non-specific, it's often that way around. And then when the thing starts, it has its own momentum. So that I can see, looking at that book, that there is a logic to it. And of course, I put some thought into it, very, very little, consciously. So that I could see that it was beginning to be like a story, in a way. 
even though I'm also not very into stories, but something was evolving through the book. And so, you know, it didn't take much work to think if it begins with frustration, might end with satisfaction. And then there were the things in the middle. Um, and it did seem to me like a book. But again, I would be, it's very like a joke in the sense that I can't say to you, I'll tell you a good joke. I can tell you a joke, you'll tell me whether it's good. The writing's like that. I write it, and then they, or you, tell me what you think. I like, I really like it. But I don't therefore assume anybody else will. I just think I'll have to find out. Well, I hope you're going to like this. We're going to tell you a little bit about it to start with uh, before we go on to other things. Um, so this is a book about the lives we haven't led, led or in, in a sense in praise of the unlived life. Um, and you say, I mean, you, 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 you lead us to think about um, these doublings that we all live, that we all assume um, we all have, and, and that will, I've got a very strange echo in my voice, which is why I'm pausing. It's my double, obviously. It's my unlived life speaking <laughs> right now. Um, in my unlived life, I'm always talking to Adam Phillips. Um, <laughs> but, but what, so th these are lives that, that in some ways we want, we wish for, we daydream about, and we haven't managed to put into our actuality, our everyday, our everydayness. And yet, what I, so what I'd like to understand from you, first of all, is how this pans out on a daily level. Can you, can you give us an, an incident of it? Or, yeah, or? I, and in a way it's easy. I mean, in this book, I sort of reinvent the wheel, which is, of course, worth inventing. <laughs> but it's a very simple, it seems to me, a very simple idea, which is partly Freud's and partly Beyond's and partly those of other people's, which is that in order to desire, there has to be frustration. Out of frustration, desire comes. In the process of beginning to want something, one begins to have fantasies about what it might be. And of course, these fantasies, they have sources, they're, they're constructing a sense in the culture. But that we can't help but have, so as far as we can bear it, some sort of what we think of as a mental life, a life going on in our minds. And this is on the one hand, if you believe the Freudian story, we're forever unconsciously formulating disguised pictures of our desire and again in this story, seeking refuges from these desires. But I'm assuming that it's need and want and desire driven the project for survival. So that's a simple sort of biological Darwinian point. These needs and desires, as they meet and clash with the external world, um, have to, uh, they are formed and deformed in that process. But what it means is we're always, at, consciously and unconsciously, imagining forms of satisfaction. And I think probably also imagining the end of the need for satisfaction. I mean, what Jones' idea about a nice thing is really a good idea about the fear and the wish for the death of desire. So on the one hand, there's a relentless project of wanting, and then there's an anxiety and a tremendous fear about this wanting. But the wanting produces fantasy. It formulates itself as representation. So that we're always, you know, if you think of it as, as dreams or daydreams, the first stage, so to speak, is a fantasy. Then the question is, what happens to the fantasy in terms of shared reality? And it is inevitable and structural that, by definition, our needs cannot all be met. So the question is, what happens to unmet need? And in a sense, that's partly what the book is about. Now you might think, that's what the future is for, unmet need. That's the place where it might be met or approximated. Or that's the place where it fails. But we can't help but be future oriented. 
because we're looking forward to what we want. And, and growing up is a process, it's a twofold process, at least in Freud's story. On the one hand, of getting a realistic sense of what it is we can and should want. But also, that very realistic sense is a preemptive strike against possibility. Because actually, we never know what's possible. And so the Emersonian version of Freudian unconscious is, we never know what's possible. And the Freudian version is, we actually have got some idea of what's possible, and it's quite limited. And the Darwinian idea? Well, I think the Darwinian idea, in a weird way, is a mixture. Because in my understanding of this, we are given adaptation. I mean, if adaptation, survival, with a view to the possibility of reproduction is the, is the Darwinian story, Freud, in a way, is producing a counter-story, or, or a parallel story, in which Freud says, not only do we want to survive, we also want to die. It's a death instinct. Um, not only do we want to reproduce, but we don't want to reproduce. The sex is in the service of other things. So it's like Freud is a complement to Darwin. In the Darwinian story, it seems to me, everything has to be understood in terms of adaptation. So, for example, this is rather crude, but a Darwinian version of a daydream would say, we daydream to make our frustration bearable. In other words, this is the way that we adapt to scarcity. Because what Darwin and Freud put in the centre of the picture, which makes them so interesting and realistic, is they both believe in scarcity. Different versions of it, but in scarcity. So scarcity is the, re is the regulative fiction in the middle of it, or it's not a fiction. It's what makes them Victorians, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. <coughs> and scarcity, it must be reactive to scarcity, but fantasy is generated. So, you, I think you say in the book that what Freud adds to the Darwinian um, survival idea is the idea of pleasure. So the, the human becomes a pleasure-seeking animal. Um, but you also say that what psychoanalysis is, I, I think I quote, I wrote it down. Um, yes, psychoanalysis tells us we can understand satisfaction only by understanding frustration. And what psychoanalysis is about is about helping us to that understanding. Yeah. I mean, the actual psychotherapeutic project is about. Can, can you elaborate yeah, on I can. that? Yeah, I mean, in a way, it should, it should predate, in a way, psychotherapy. In the sense of, I really think frustration should be taught in schools, say. <laughs> I think children really know a lot about it. The only thing they don't have is an elaborate cultural language to represent it. So I really think it would be a useful thing to teach in schools. And it's not presented as a good, whereas you, in this book, Yes. counterintuitively are presenting frustration yes. as the fundamental good. Yes, and my assumption in the book is that not being able to bear frustration, the consequence of not being able to bear frustration is the impossibility of satisfaction. That only in states of frustration can we begin to imagine what it is we might want and find out. All right, give, it, give us this, 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 this picture from childhood on. I mean, we can see it in the, in the, in the babe at breast. I mean, you know, frustration is already built into the fact that mother isn't ever present and you'll have to be weed. But what happens after that? I mean, what happens at adolescence? Well, let, just, let's start there. Okay. okay, sorry. Let's imagine a, a simple situation in which the child, I mean, I'm sure everybody in the room knows the story, but the child waits too long for the mother. Now, of course, a whole range of things might happen in that time period. Either the child's desire will die or be dissociated, or the child will cook up a fantasy of an ideal mother. And he or she will grow up in relationship to the ideal mother.
so that everybody he or she meets in adolescent adulthood will be tremendously disappointed. There'll be a grudge against reality because the primary relationship is with the fantasized, idealized mother. Let's say that's one picture. Now it seems to me in adolescence, with the development of puberty, there is, as it were, I mean there are lots of ways to describe this, but one would be in psychotic terms, a kind of sexualization of the original appetite of hunger. In other words, our first experience of appetite is hunger and the need to be comforted and all that stuff. This then evolves into something else that is similar to it. The difference, of course, is that ideally, or hopefully, everybody has some version of a mother when they have a need when they're children. As adults, we do not have somebody available for our sexual satisfaction in the same way. They're incommensurate. So we have to then put together we have to what we discover in adolescence is more frustration and a greater intensity of desire and the physiological wherewithal to gratify it. In adolescence, you can kill someone, you can conceive, etc. So all that stuff becomes real in a different way. And so there's so the adolescents then are very, very dependent on the adults to contain, guide, frustrate, etc., this new flourishing desire. And it seems to me the important bit of this is that the adolescents are not merely killjoys, that there is a promise acknowledged. It's an open promise. In other words, the adolescent actually doesn't know what's possible, and neither do his parents. So that authority here is very, very ambiguous. But on the one hand, it says, on the basis of my experience, this is what I think you can genuinely look forward to. But who can say? Later on in the book, and I'm not going to shuffle papers and try and find out which section it's in, um, but, but it somehow seems to pertain here, you talk about the relationship of pornography um, to um, frustration and satisfaction. I think it might be in the chapter on satisfaction. I don't know whether you want to leap into that now, but I suddenly had this image as you were talking about the adolescent. Well, yeah, there's a simple point in this, which is that the culture preempts frustration. And that may be one of the things culture is for, as opposed to make frustration bearable. But it seems to me, in the kind of culture we live in, which in adolescent terms might be called capitalist consumer culture, we are all the time being encouraged to believe that what we want is available and quite quickly available. So that the moment I might feel an unease about wanting something, I can immediately say, have a bar of chocolate, or make a phone call, have a bath. Now it seems to me education should be in the direction of creating a gap, not because it's good to be frustrated, but because it's good to be satisfied. And you know if you have ten bars of chocolate, you won't be satisfied. But the degrees of satisfaction really do matter. So the risk is growing up in a culture that fobs you off with fake satisfaction. You, you talk about the value <laughs> of waiting, or, or, or sort of muse on the trope of waiting in the book. And that's part of this picture too, isn't it? That waiting is built into uh, both frustration and the importance of frustration, of getting it, um, and then uh, satisfaction later on. So the instant gratification, which is the, the, the kind of babble, psychobabble that we have around this, how does that play in? Well, I don't want to knock instant gratification, okay. because it can be very, very, very gratifying. <laughs> but the point is that there's a, there's a range here of gratifications. A friend of mine once said to me, people who are good at waiting are only good at waiting because they've got nothing better to do. 
<laughs> so I think we need to put that in the picture. And adolescents are not good at weight. No, and it may be a great thing to be good at. I mean, we need, it seems we have both options here. One is, it's terrible to be very good at waiting, and it's very, very good. And it depends on the circumstance and the situation. But the advantage of waiting are the pleasures of imagination, the pleasures of longing, the pleasures of actually being able to, as we cook up and elaborate. It's what like Winnicott said, the, the imaginative elaboration physical function. Without imaginative elaboration, sometimes it's not satisfying enough. And the only reason all this matters is because if there isn't sufficient satisfaction, life becomes futile. I mean, Freud is engaged in working out what satisfactions will sustain secular modern people. You know, go on making them feel that it's worth it. Because it's clear to Freud, as is everybody over the age of 40, that it's not obvious that it is worth it. And that's what psychoanalysis is investigating. What, if anything, makes it worth it? Well, it's got to be some form of satisfaction. Okay, before we get to the satisfaction, there's all these ways of avoiding frustration. Um, uh, or doing different things with it. And, and one of the ways you talk about this is by going into tragedy. And the sections of the book are, the first ones in any case, are divided up through Shakespeare's great tragedies. Um, so, uh, um, in the first one, on not getting it, um, you have, is it Othello in the first one? King Lear. King Lear, sorry. King Lear doesn't get it because Cordelia doesn't get it. Nobody knows what the other is saying and nobody is in on the joke. And the, the analogy you use is a Freud's joke. And at first I was a little bit, oh, is, is this right? Can this actually hold the apparatus of tragedy? But, but you make it do that. So how does that work? Why is it useful um, to get it or not get it? What does it mean to us? Well, it's, it's, it's a big, just it's a big, big question. question. I know. But, Sorry. But I tragedies. Know. I mean, tragedies are interesting in this regard because they're about thwarted, catastrophic projects of wanting. The beginning of all these tragedies, people want something. And the tragic hero believes this is entirely doable. We can find who did X. I can make my daughter love me. I can have my wife to myself. All this stuff. So they begin in a very fundamental situation in which the hero wants something and thinks he knows what he wants. And the way he goes about wanting to create havoc. So that they're therefore useful, these plays. I mean, apart from it, they're wonderful, they're also useful. So that it seemed to me, although I didn't think of it like this, a way into the question, because what I want to do in this book is to take the tragedy out of wanting, obviously. Because I think tragedy, in some ways, is silly. It's self-aggrandizing, and there's a melodrama in it. I would prefer a comedy of wanting. And so this book, I think, is on the side of that. So this book is saying to us, actually, our profoundest experiences are not in tragedy. They're in comedies. I want to persuade you of this. But the tragedies are very, very revealing about poor forms of wanting. And poor forms of wanting are vengeful. That's the point. Frustration leads to vengeance. Vengeance leads to killing <coughs> So that's the gist of it, I think. But you, you also seem to want to say that, that tragedies, the tragedy of tragedy, is that the hero moves into action too quickly, yeah. um, and knows ahead of time what will satisfy him. And that to me was absolutely fascinating. I mean, is it the case, 
it's, it's almost like a kind of neuroscientific looking at the brain where, you know, you, part of you knows beforehand what it is that you want, and then the action happens a few seconds later, or in Hamlet's case, you put it off much later, and Othello's too, because you've got to find the truth. But nonetheless, tragedy is about um, knowing what you want, and in a sense, getting it. Yeah. Um, there are two bits. Um, there's the knowing and there's the exactly. Now, the knowing bit is, it seems to me, the tyranny of what some psychologists call a perverse state of mind is the tyranny in which one knows exactly what one wants and must force the world to provide it. Now, exactly is the wrong word for wanting. So this book, insofar as I can tell, is on the side of approximations and a various world. But when I know exactly what I want, it's because I can't bear to work out what I want and I'm not open to if there's not genuine open exchange. Because I think real, it's a terrible way to talk, but real wanting is finding that seeking. You see what I mean? When you're, in, when you're doing seeking, you're potentially on a very perverse, tyrannical, murderous route. That, I think, is what I want from the book. So, knowing what you want is being mad. Yeah, that's most extreme. So we should drop knowing and drop exactly, and then I'm worried answer. about this, Adam. I'm worried about the attack on knowing, and I I want to know why it is in this book you actually completely subvert. Maybe it's the 1950s view of psychoanalysis as a, a, a pursuit of the examined self, as as an attempt to find knowledge, and here you turn it on the head, and, and knowledge, knowing. Uh, what the self wants is actually murderous. It leads you into either tragedy or it is an expression but of madness. It's not, the book is not against knowing. It's adding something. And again, this is reinventing the wheel. You can find a lot of this in Winnicott. But it seems to me the basic idea here is that, that some analysts, including Freud and certainly Klein, and in a way Lacan in a different way, have idealized psychoanalysis as an epistemological project. Now, one of the things that all the insight analysts discovered in the 1560s was you get all this insight because it's make a blind bit of difference. Now, that in itself <laughs> isn't surprising. But what it led some people, I think the most inter interesting analysts to think, would be this. Uh, to what extent is knowing the attempt to preempt certain experiences? How much is knowing the problem rather than the solution? Sometimes. So this is not promoting a psychoanalysis which is all about not knowing. It's promoting a psychoanalysis which includes knowing where, where and when it's useful, but also not bothering with knowing when actually it's a distraction or a sense. That's the point. I can remember years ago, having a dinner with Steve Mitchell, the analyst in America, and I can't remember, I think we talked about Lacan, but I can't remember, and Steve said to me, I'm always wary of people who are charismatic and tell you how much they don't know. <laughs> and I thought that was very shrewd. So, I suppose this book, insofar as it has an intention, is against that kind of thing. But it's also against the kind of rather glib idealising of not knowing, and the endlessly reiterated, boring quote of Keats' negative capability, etc. And all that stuff, I think, is deadly. Because it becomes very, very glib, and anybody can not know, and it's the easiest thing in the world. But what I'm talking about here is not ignorance, it's about being able to yield to certain kinds of experience without preemptively needing to know what they are. That's what this is about. And it's very like being a child and listening to the adult speaking and not having any idea what they mean, but enjoying it. And whatever that it is, 
is my preferred model of satisfaction. You say at one point, although it's not directly linked to this, um, understanding is not always the best thing one can do with need. And I think you, you've given me a pre-gloss on, on that um, very beautifully put um, statement. But, so where have we got to? Can I add something to that? Yes. 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 Um, I think it's better to have a conversation in a state of need than just understand one's need. In other words, you could treat needs as already there, waiting to be known, or you could treat needs as things that people make together with other people. And so you haven't got a sort of bank account of needs, so to speak, or an armamentarium of needs. You've got potential possibilities that are realised with specific other people. So that in relationships you discover your needs, you don't get them met. Because the getting them met is very secondary. It's the discovering them and the acknowledgement of them that's interesting. And that's the point of having so-called relationships. It's about the discovery of need, not the gratification of need. Although a bit of gratification goes a long way. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, in the chapter on getting away with it, um, you talk about, I think this leads, I think we're leading to it there. Uh, you talk about Lacan's obscene superego and, and, and the kind of brutal um, authority that, that actually monitors um, everything and including our thoughts. Um, and I, I wanted you to elaborate a bit on that in relationship again to, to this uh, idea of understanding and that's a good, yeah, That's a good link because this, this superego that Lacan's talking about is a great knower. He, it, she, it knows. Never she, she. It knows. <laughs> it knows who you should and shouldn't be, in an absolute sense. Now that knowledge is actually impossible. Where could it possibly come from? That's what makes it obscene, because it's it, it is omniscient. It's an essentialist. It's telling you who you are and therefore telling you who you're not. So whenever that's happening, you can be sure it isn't true. And that would be the rule of thumb. That those that tyrannical voice has to be at minimum ironised and at best discussed. So give me an example of, of uh, somebody who comes to see a relation and how that obscene superego plays into... Well, it, it seems to me this is a very ordinary... We don't even have to go there. It's a very ordinary experience that people will feel there are pleasures that they might be quite aware of that they feel they can't risk. And that's, in a way, all we're talking about. We're talking about risk. We're talking about the risks that one is drawn to and the risks that feel, for whatever reason, absolutely impossible. So whenever impossibility turns up in the picture, you can be sure there's strong desire and a savage superego. Because actually, you have to discover what things are impossible. You don't know beforehand. So it's the, the superego hates one having an experimental life. Because for the superego, all the experiments have all already been done. That's the difference. Okay, hold that for questions on that. Um, which, which of your tragic heroes might have an obscene superego? Do you well, think it... In a way, they would all have. Okay. I mean, there's a very interesting... Stephen Greenberg gave a very interesting lecture about King Lear, where he said, the tragedy of King Lear is that at the beginning of the play, everybody knows this old man, because he's old, is redundant. No one can face the redundancy of the old. 
neither the old nor their children. Therefore, a massive thing is concocted, which produces a huge drama and a tragedy. So there's a refusal of knowledge, if you like, in that. that you, know, you know, that, whether or not that's true, it's a good illustration of this problem. Because the question is, the question is always, what's possible? And this is where, in a way, William James is more useful than Freud. Because James always wants to know, um, what use is this? He doesn't want to know whether something's true, he wants to know what we can do with it. Now the superego deals in truths. The superego is not a pragmatist, it's an absolutist, it's sovereign. So that's another difference. Okay. Um, I just, I want to talk to you about Philip Clark. Next. And this is the chapter called, what is it called, Adam? Help me. I've got my glasses. Um, I'm getting out of it. So, do you, do you want to just elaborate quickly on uh, getting away with and getting out? Not really, no. Okay. It's, it's very well done in the book, and it's not something that I can possibly repeat because it's very textual. Yeah, exactly, it is. Um, and hard to speak, but wonderful on the page. But, um, <laughs> On Getting Out of It begins with Philip Larkin and uh, that famous poem, which you can also quote to us, they fuck you up, your mum and dad, they don't need to, but they do. Um, and I've got it here if, you really, if you'd like to read it to us. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you want me to read it? I'd love you to read it, because everybody only half knows it, particularly the end, which we're then going to riff on. I think, it's, I, think I marked it. I think it might be one of my little yellow bits. It's all getting out of it in any case. Maybe I didn't like it, sorry. No, I think you might have actually. Yes. Here we are. This is called This Be the Verse. <clears throat> they fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man, it deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can, and don't have any kids yourself. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's worth reading that because it, it, it's in many ways a very psychoanalytic poem um, about you know, the haunting through the generations of all the misery um, of life. <laughs> um, but really what you're most interested in is those last lines and about the decision about the future. So tell us about that. The, you can remember. No, I can remember. But the, the difficulty of this, I mean, I will ask you, the difficulty of this is that in talking about one's book, it's as if there's more book. And of course, there isn't more book, there's only the book in the book. So my first thought is, if you're interested in this, read it in the book. But the second bit, just to participate, is um, <laughs> that the poem it seems to me interesting because it tells you about something terrible, but it doesn't tell you what the alternative is. In other words, it's a negative account of a life. It says, don't do this. But of course, what it doesn't say is, if you don't do this, you'll be okay. It just says, this is terrible. And it, and it encourages us to believe that there is an inevitable, ineluctable transmission of misery. Therefore, we've got to stop the cycle. But the poem's interesting for that reason, because that seems to be very you know, worth taking seriously. But the poem's also interesting because it says get out, 
But it's like Berlin's freedom from and freedom for. You think, okay, well, once you've got out, what happens then? What do you do with the, the rest of your life if you decided, insofar as you can, not to transmit this misery by having children? And it, that's completely open. And I think it's worth thinking about. You seem to suggest that there's a kind of cutting off of experience. Um, yeah, yes, exactly. Which, which is, which is um, almost another kind of madness. I mean, you know, linked to the obscene, not linked to the obscene superego, but not unlike it, where you have a total, it seems to assume that there is a total knowledge of the future, mm. whereas in fact there is... But in a way, that's what the poem exposes. Because that's okay. a good way of putting it. The poem is written in a sort of English Philistine superego voice. It says, I know the truth about life, this is it, so do this. But of course, because it's a poem and not a piece of propaganda, it actually provokes the thoughts it's trying to stop you having. And that's the difference. That's what makes it not a superego poem. Because actually, it's so subtle in its way that you find yourself wondering about all sorts of things. Like, for example, coastal shelves. So, Why? Well, <laughs> there, there are at least two things. That, well, one of the things, well, it deepens like a coastal shelf. Well, coastal shelves don't always deepen. And in what sense is this misery like a coastal shelf? In other words, is it geological? Are we talking about millions of years? Because, of course, we also know that people can make each other feel better. That has also happened. But I think the pre Not just Philip Black. Well, we don't know that But the preempting of experience, which is why it's so interesting in the poem, because the poem is about not having children. But of course, the one that you can't know about before you have them is having children, obviously. And of course, Larkin knows that, because he's very, very intelligent. So the, the poem is saying, here are lots of experiences you shouldn't have. And we're, and we're left wondering, well, why? Or what happened, what might have happened to a person to make them feel like that about children? And that seems to be a question with us. I, I thought what was very interesting in, in your riff on the poem was also this whole notion of the authority of inexperience. Yeah. In other words, um, we know more about utopias, we know more about dystopias than we know about our lives. Um, and that struck me as absolutely fascinating because, of course, in some ways it's true. I know, I know very much more about um, my daydreams than I might know about what my child has thought that morning. Um, but the book's explicit that we know more, we think we know more about the experiences we don't have than the ones we do have. And that's where, and again, psychonauts are very useful here, because omniscience is the saboteur of experience. And in a way, this book, again, reinventing the wheel, says the worst thing we ever do is think we're omniscient. Because omniscience precludes exchange. And that's what not knowing is about. It's the opposite of omniscience. So what are our satisfactions, then? They're different for each person. They're constituted by the culture. But education and parenting should help us have a language to begin to work this out. But, but really, you, do, you don't want satisfaction. You, I mean, in the trap, no, I do. satisfaction. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> I really the, do. I'm going to dispute this. I, I, I want to have a row. Um, in the chapter on satisfaction, we always row. <laughs> I'm being polite tonight. In the, in the chapter on, on satisfactions, um, I think you, su you suggest that taking satisfaction is a bit like um, taking part in a duel, where somehow your honor or sense of justice will be. Uh, re put back into place. 
Do you not? Have I got that wrong? Well, no, not entirely, but, but I think what the book says, I mean, I'm not authority in this book either, but I think what the book says is that um, the unfortunate forms of satisfaction are vengeful. The book is inviting us to consider forms of satisfaction that are not vengeful. And you include pornography in that? Yeah, because I think it's vengeful. But I think that imagining forms of satisfaction that are not subtly or secretly or insidiously forms of revenge is quite difficult. Okay, I'm looking at people's eyes and I think people are having difficulty understanding why um, revenge. Well, it's very simple, which is this. If somebody can satisfy you, they can frustrate you. If you're frustrated and they don't acknowledge this, you kill them. You're very cross with them. It's not a mystery. It's the easiest thing in the world. We're all doing it all the time. So revenge is second nature. The question is, can we stop it being second nature? Because it's so awful. That's my moral point. Do you want to come and write my next book? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, w I want to try something else out on you. I, I'm... Ooh, I shouldn't try this. Is that you or me? That's me. Um, when I, until I got to the final chapter of this book, the chapter about um, acting madness, I thought to myself, the heck was Adam again? He's doing something just completely counterintuitive and not at all like me at all. I mean, I don't spend my time thinking about my uh, on enough lives. I haven't got a whole lot of lives that I would have liked to have lived. It's just because I'm so thoroughly complacent and unthinking that actually um, I'm always satisfied with a half full glass rather than worrying about the half empty one and that I don't really have any proximity to my unconscious or indeed my, my, my daydream life. Um, and I want to put that to you. Are there people who are temperamentally not the people who think or worry about their unlived lives? Um, and I'm just completely immersed in the present. No, I mean, I'm assuming that everybody is different, so there could not be a true generalization. What psychoanalysis is useful for is showing us why people might not fantasize about alternative lives and why they might. So why no. might people not fantasize? Well, either because they couldn't bear the tantalization of it and couldn't bear the frustration of acknowledging their desire, or, as you say, because they're living in the present, and, and, and each person has their own account. But I think, that, I think the psychonic story that a capacity to fantasize is useful and pleasurable is true. But I do think that in... It's possible to imagine a life in which one is no longer at all interested in oneself. And that is a life without fantasy. In the sense that I think that the aim of psychoanalysis is to enable people to forget themselves, really. And so I can imagine, although it has never happened, getting to a point in which you would no longer need to fantasize and to engage in those kinds of exchanges because your pleasure, your relationality with other people, would be of, di of a different order. It wouldn't be a continual process of plotting and revenge. You'd have a different relationship to your own desire. And I can imagine that. Can you imagine that people might not want to go into the matter of their unlived lives because it brought up that whole um, sort of hoary awfulness of envy? And regret. And regret, but regret is, is obviously part of this. 
hands if they're not too, too long. And please stand up and shout because um, you haven't got a mic, I don't believe. Okay. Yes, just at the end there. Stand Do stand up. Okay. Um, I love the book. Um, and I'm forever giving your books to friends who then say, can we talk about it? And I find that all I want to do when we're doing that is read chunks of the book, which rather reinforces something you said. And it's one of the things I really love about it. It just is what it is when it's there. Um, the bit I loved best was the, uh, the last chapter on acting madness. And I don't know whether there is anything more that you can say about it. But I, I just was kind of entranced by, by it and wondered, there's something I can't, I don't know why, but do for myself in relation to that chapter, in relation to the rest of the book. It doesn't matter at all, but I just love it if you had any further thoughts on that chapter in that book. Let me say, I'm not saying I'm delighted you like the book, but um, two things. One is, your experience of reading the book is what I would wish. That's to say, I wouldn't want people to come from reading my books being able to repeat or remember what the ideas were. Because the book's written in sentences, not in ideas. And so it's not about remembering what I think about anything. It's about having your own thoughts and enjoying the reading experience. The last chapter was added on later, as I think I mentioned. And I'm not sure either what it's got to do with the book. I mean, I can make links, if you see what I mean. But I really love that piece of writing. And it seemed to me somehow of a piece with the rest of the book. But it could be entirely factitious, if that's still a word, that I put that chapter in that book. I think you're right, but it's got something to do with it, but then everything might have something to do with it. <laughs> it has tragedy in it. Yeah, has yes. tragedy. Yes. You can stand so you can address everybody. Sure. Um, I wanted to ask um, about the chapter on getting out of it. Um, one of the things that you say repeatedly in it is that getting out of something involves a sort of omniscience about what we are in and I think what, we're get what we want to get out of. Um, but to me, one of the things that is said about the sort of Freudian idea of the death instinct is that one effect of it is that it gets us out of something. Um, and I think Beyond and others talk about it as a, a disconnection from something. Um, so I was wondering if you might speculate a little bit on the relationship between your idea of getting out of it and the death instinct. No, I mean, I think it's a good point. I think that in the terms in which we're speaking now, the death instinct is an omniscience about life. In other words, it says it's not worth living. It says it needs to be destroyed. Well, that seems to me to be an open question. So in this internal democracy that I'm proposing here, the, the so-called death instinct, if you believe in it, is going to be the part of the self akin to the superego that knows exactly what life is like, i.e. to be destroyed. And it would seem to me that is, that's, that's worth wondering about. You might end up believing it, but you may not, and you may want to find out. So it is an all-knowing instinct. It's not a more primal. Well, anything or any part of oneself that claims to know what life is really like is lying to us. Because life isn't really like anything. And you couldn't know it. Yes, just step up. Um, I enjoyed the book as well. And I just wanted to ask whether um, the idea of knowing is, is problematic, whether um, it's only tragic or it's only destructive, um, the example you give with Othello, um, if you for example, you want to know uh, another person, um, if that's only problematic if you are looking at that person as a, as a potential object that you want to internalise, or whether, um, whether that's the only, the only solution to um, that not being problematic is to, to get out of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that, in a way, that's the question. I mean, I internalise, 
I don't know if you mean the sense of incorporate because it's beyond your control, but my thought about this would be that, that in this version of knowledge, um, the attempt is to understand a person such that one will no longer desire them and depend upon them. As though knowledge could get you out of dependence and desire. So that, and, and again, I mean, Proust is the most interesting person I've I'm sure you know, but in that, in The Prisoner, Proust, the narrator, describes an attempt to literally imprison an object of desire, to, to have the fancy of knowing everything about her, such that she will no longer have power over him. But of course the power she has over him is her enigmatic nature to him. Because well, she would never know somebody, it would be impossible to know what that would be. But the project is addictive because it's unsatisfying. And so I think the book is about... Even in death. Even in death, or particularly in death. <laughs> so that, you know, this is why murder wouldn't work. You would keep them alive so they're still known. But I think in this story, um, it would be... It's a question of what you're using knowing to do. And it seems to me lots of forms of knowing are actually um, attempts to um, detach oneself from one's need for the world. See what I mean? So that, because we can't be made of something that the world isn't made of, because we're not outside it. So we're of a piece with the world. But in these omniscient fantasies, we attempt to separate ourselves off as self-sufficient and not of the same kind as others. And once you're doing that, you're trying to kill the world. And you can't do that. You can't, you can't live like that. It's impossible. You, you always talk, you also talk very well about knowledge as a defense. Um, Sure, now I'm cross-eyed, so you don't know how I'm yeah, but I'm thinking. Oh. Um, this is a very vague question, I haven't read your book. I just can you speak up so I can hear you as well? <laughs> this is a very vague question because I haven't read the book. But it involves something that interests me, because where does creativity come to play in your book? Because creativity seems to be all about not knowing and, and understanding the importance of not knowing. So, but yet artists aren't necessarily all sane or any of those things, but they're not, but it's this, I'm just wondering if you dealt with the notion of creativity and any of these chapters, because the whole journey of, of creativity is not knowing and in trying to investigate something. Um, well, hopefully I don't use that word, creativity, but the book, in a sense, is all about what I think you're talking about, in the sense of um, that imaginative activity is the consequence of frustration. That's in this story that I'm peddling here. That's where it comes from. So what is called creativity is whatever we make of what we desire, how we elaborate it. So in a way I could say to you, that's all the book is about. It's about what we can make of what we're given. Why is creativity a word that you because the word, Because the word doesn't work for me, because it implies there's a creator. Because of its religious association, I'm it's your association, oh, no, but it's mine. Because in my book there isn't a creator, and that thinking of it like that is misleading. But I'm not saying that's so your what, what is the what is the word you use? Well, I wouldn't use one. I mean, I just talk about all the ways in which people make things. Imagination creeps in once, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, it's okay. 
I understand I have this problem with the word creativity as well because I grew up at a time when it only applied to advertising, and although I have nothing particularly against advertising, but the only place that had creative departments were advertising firms. It's like a madman, really. Well, like the um, trouble is it implies a hierarchy. I think everybody's equally creative, just that everybody's equally intelligent. Okay. Any more questions? Yes. Uh, I believe this might be an extra textual question. Uh, I was very interested in this idea you said that you thought frustration, or, or coping with frustration, should be taught in schools. Uh, and I wonder to what extent you think the entire social aspect of edu education for children <laughs> is uh, an education in learning to experience frustration insofar as their needs are not immediately met as they fit into a structure and in terms of their relationship with their peers. Exactly. That's a version, I think, of what I was saying, which is that because that's what growing up is, is learning about frustration, mm -hmm. therefore, it seems to me quite important that children have access, and of course you could say, well, that's what all education is, but the children have access to useful languages and representations of what frustration might be, and also to the adults giving an alluring, exciting, intriguing, interesting picture of frustration, not as something that is merely to be born or tolerated or endured. But I think you're right, it's all about frustration. What else could it be about? It's, a, it's terrible that it, it's such a difficult word. And I think the um, history of the word frustration and the things that have been attributed to it uh, don't serve the no. project well. No. Um, because, of course, it was a, 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 a kind of therapeutic word. You know, frustrated housewives and that whole history of 50s frustration, which people thought had been broken through in the 60s. And, and to attempt to, to kind of bring it in through this interesting back door, <laughs> um, although what, what fills the word is really interesting. It is, but it doesn't sound But the word nice. itself is, is, is a word that has, for me, a lot of negative associations, many of which have come from the therapy industries. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I don't know if anybody else has, has that. Um, I mean, a lack of satisfaction is better than a frustration, but a frustration is a much more active sense. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. So it's not a lack. Um, no, it's not a lack. Questions? <laughs> yes, right at the back. Could you stand up because we can't hear you? Without sufficient satisfaction, life is futile. Are there people who, who are not sufficiently satisfied and have their terms with that? Well, the risk is, I think, that they, that, um, I mean, there are loads of people who are not sufficiently satisfied, um, but the risk is that they become uh, politically quiescent. That because there's no confidence in political life, it becomes dissociated depression and a kind of embittered endurance or stoicism or something. But I think a different political world would provide a different kind of language for frustration. So I think, I think there are, you know, untold numbers of people who are frustrated, but without a political way of representing or living this, it's terrible. There's a sort of implosion of frustration. And would that cover the people that take their own lives that are suicidal? Well, you can't generalise, I mean, I know that's, but you can't generalise about that. Because sometimes people want to kill off the part of themselves that is suffering. Sometimes people want to kill off something in themselves and they don't know what it is. But they end up having to kill.
kill the whole thing. But I think it must surely be one of the reasons for suicide is some, something unbearable, something that hasn't been met or recognised or acknowledged. I, I, I'm just going to go back to the book for a moment and, and ask you this because I found it quite an astonishing and illuminating section. And of course, as ever, I can't remember unless I look at my sheet. Um, but, but it was to do with, with uh, satisfaction being vengeful and revenge being satisfying. And you talk about, this is in terms of Othello and, and his Damon now, um, and you say loyalty is a defense against being disillusioned. And you're, you're in part talking about her, but it's a very general statement. And I started to think about this. And I thought, I'm very loyal, I'm very loyal to my friends. And I wonder, is this in effect, uh, um, you know, part of that syndrome? Whereas if you were vengeful, um, you would have a completely different relationship to friendship as well as to lovers. Um, you talk in that as well, in that section as well, about love never being between equals, since it, um, of course, you say, takes one back to periods of dependence in infancy. And I, I don't know, just riff about that, Anne. I don't know what the question is, really. It's a, it's a very interesting area. and. and um, I mean, I think there's a middle bit, see. I think that if we just take what you just said, not you, but what you just said, um, there's a sense in which if loyalty is a way of avoiding disillusionment, then the alternative to that would be when and if you were frustrated by your friends, you would voice it. You know, a new kind of demand would be made. The risk is that demand would turn vengeful were it not to be acknowledged or were it too much refused. So it's safer to remain loyal. So it's really about, I think, in this story, um, that um, one values people by making demands on them. If one's fearful of the demand cycle, then one just sticks with the picture. And that both entraps you and reassures you. And in terms of Othello's relationship to Desdemona, she's the one who practices loyalty. Yeah. Because she doesn't want to be disillusioned by him. But he's uh, emphatically searching for a truth, which in fact has nothing to do with her. It's a truth related to knowledge. But in a way, I think one of the reasons the play is poignant is because they're both equally deluded in a different way. That is to say, she can't properly take in what he's become. And he won't let her be something that she is. And the combination is deadly. But it looks heartrending, her apparent innocence. But from the outside, you could say, well, she's got a very similar problem to his, which is she simply won't allow herself to see what she sees. Any more questions? Because if not, I'm going to ask Adam one last one, and then I will let him go to sign books for you. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you really about where you are now and um, work on working on Freud biography. And whether that's a kind of project that really excites you in terms of the writing of it, and what it is that excites you about it. It really doesn't excite me. <laughs> um, because it's the kind of work I hate doing. But, because there are facts in it, because obviously I can't make it up. Um, <laughs> so there's that. But the bit that excites me is trying to write a biography of Freud that incorporates Freud's misgivings about writing biography. <laughs> that really does interest me. So it's a combination. 
but I find it very, very difficult to get down to doing it because it involves what I think people call research. <laughs> research is the last thing on earth I want to do. I want to read, but I don't want to do research. So I've in fact read all the books, but I haven't read all the books with a view to remembering what's in them. I've read the books because they're... It's very difficult. It's, well, it's almost impossible for me to do that. So that's a short answer, but of course, it's a very interesting life, partly because so little happens in it. Except the trip here. <laughs> Okay, um, well, thank you so much for that, Adam, and I'm going to go and live out with my missed lives now, my unlived life, um, and you're all going to give Adam a big hand and then travel downstairs.